Soldiers who want to be heroes Number practically zero But there are millions Who want to be civilians Soldiers who want to be heroes Number practically zero But there are millions Who want to be civilians Come and take my eldest son Show him how to shoot a gun Wipe his eyes if he starts to cry When the bullets fly Give him a rifle, take his hoe Show him a field where he can go To lay his body down and die Without asking why Soldiers who want to be heroes Number practically zero There are millions who want to be civilians Soldiers who want to be heroes Number practically zero But there are millions who want to be civilians Sticks and stones can break your bones Even names can hurt you But the thing that hurts the most Is when a man deserts you Don't you think it's time to weed The leaders that no longer lead From the people of the land Who'd like to see their sons again Soldiers who want to be heroes Number practically zero But there are millions Who want to be civilians Soldiers who want to be heroes Number practically zero But there are millions Who want to be civilians God, if men could only see A lesson taught by history That all the singers of the psalms Cannot write a single wrong Let all men of goodwill Stay in the fields they have to till Feed the mouths they have to fill And cast away their arms Soldiers who want to be heroes Number practically zero But there are millions Who want to be civilians Soldiers who want to be heroes Number practically zero But there are millions Who want to be civilians Soldiers who want to be heroes Number practically zero But there are millions Who want to be civilians Soldiers who want to be heroes Number practically zero But there are millions Who want to be civilians Soldiers who want to be heroes Number practically zero But there are millions That was Soldiers Who Want to Be Heroes by Rod McEwen, and this is podcast 137 entitled Hero of the War. Now, I uh, love that song by Rod McEwen uh, from 1971, and this allows me to say that, you know, for years and years, one just um, immediately put Rod McEwen in a total box and just, you know, gagged me with a spoon coming from where I was living and coming from. But, you know, the funny thing was I had never actually listened to Rod McEwen actually in my entire life, except for the highly overwrought and to me very affecting songs of Joanna, the 1968 film by Michael Sarn. And um, I should have known because... Uh, I responded in my gut with tremendous affect and feeling and sorrow as I listened to McEwen's songs for Joanna. And then, uh, because of a number of things, I just immediately sort of said, listen to the warm, and I put it all into a category. And, you know, this is the big thing about categories and categorization, which is really what this 
podcast is about because you allow yourself to think things because something is put into a pigeonhole or a category, and then you can just dismiss it out of hand. One of the biggest problems I feel today with um, uh, the whole generation uh, that is always listening and so completely hooked on social media, which I use just as much as a lot of people do myself, but when all you're doing is listening to what other people say and what other people think, when the attitudes are just being shaped by something coming through the earbuds 24-7, it really is, in fact, hard to think for yourself. And no more um, powerful an example of the strange inability or um, I would almost say the stone wall or the kryptonite or the lead shield against the kryptonite of truth is that people have just, you know, a vast um, numbers of secondhand ideas, one of which for me would have been pigeonholing Rod McEwen, who actually is inspired, not completely inspired, and some of it's kind of a strange dippy drippiness, but um, this song, Soldiers Who Want to Be Heroes, which was uh, conceived uh, in the Vietnam era, is really uh, powerful. And what's so interesting is that at that point, the sentiments of that song, which you've just heard, were considered absolutely mainstream. Today, they would actually be considered uh, absolutely out of line. I mean, soldiers who want to be heroes are almost practically zero. No, sir. Everybody I know, I was getting my hair cut not so long ago, and the um, barber was saying how his son is just absolutely, totally focused at age 17 on becoming a first response member of the fire department here. What a wonderful thing it is to be part of the sort of post-9-11 group. You know, if he could, he'd, he'd join the Marines right now. There's this tremendous attraction and appeal of the kind of idea that you're doing something in the military. And that, whether that's true or not, you don't have to worry. I'm not judging that. I'm judging the extraordinary change in attitudes since this remarkable song, which when we heard it uh, at that period of our time, said, well, this is obvious. It's, it's, no, nobody wants to be a hero. Billy, don't be a hero. Remember that song? Nobody wants to go to Vietnam. Hell no, we won't go. Butchers out of Southeast Asia. You remember? U.S. out of Harvard now. Well, whatever we thought about that, and I was uh, myself in reaction on the right because it was uh, cool to be not in dominant opinion in 1969, but um, that was dominant opinion, and today dominant opinion is almost the exact opposite, a kind of tremendous sense of nobility in the profession of being a soldier. Um, and somebody said the other day that the full admission of women <clears throat> on completely equal terms in small combat units now, while that may be absolutely fair, right and good and equitable in every sense, was this uh, nun, it was a, a religious sister of the RC Church, was writing, what a high cost to pay for equality. I mean, to actually, to, 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 to really think that, that, that combat is anything anyone would want, uh, uh, what a high cost, Sister So-and-so, who's very much a left-wing person, what a high cost for equality, the, quote, privilege, end of quote, of serving in combat units to kill. Um, she said, you know, she said she feared the collateral damage, the consequence of what appeared to be equitable and right would be just a further pedestalization of the military man, in this case, the military woman as hero, and what a dreadful uh, possibility that is, whether it's dreadful or not. You all have your own view on that, but it is a remarkable change. And this, um, 
in young thinking. And this particular podcast uh, is actually called Hero of the War because at the end you'll hear a song by my current fave, Scott Walker, from 1969, in which he describes the true pedestalization of a hero of the war. And I hope you'll listen. But what provoked this? was the sense that while we see ideology changing all around us, and as I said, in 1971, it's an ideology which is fundamentally and very broadly shared by a whole generation of young people, persons, that uh, militarism is by day, eo ipso, in itself, is a negative thing, something to be disadmired, disrespected, and torn down, whereas today the exact opposite holds in terms of attitudinal shifting. Um, I was attracted and really illuminated by a passage in Isherwood's journal on the nature of pacifism that actually is a much deeper thing. Uh, it's really about the nature of, uh, of, of, of making a decision, uh, making a decision of what, whether a thing is right or wrong, but on a non-ideological basis. And I'm going to read this little passage. You might call this the text for today, the third Sunday in Lent, which it's not, by the way but the epiphany text. Uh, The text for today is from the entry uh, by uh, Isherwood. Let me see here. Um, From uh, June the 17th, 1942. And uh, this is what Isherwood says, and we're talking here again about the nature of ideological positions versus the nature of simply a a personal decision. And there is a very huge difference, and uh, this is, I believe, ultimately the, um, I guess I would say the accurate way or the solid way or the anchored way of making a decision about such a thing as war or such a thing as life or pro-life or such a thing as this, that, or the other thing, regardless of the actual decision you make, which in a sense becomes almost a symbolic thing. It's more about you, but listen to how um, Isherwood um, understands his um, his uh, decision to apply for conscientious objector status. He has become an American citizen, so he is subject to the draft on June the 17th, 1942. And so he is, as an American citizen, who is also a religious man, trying to think through what it means when he applies for classification as a CO. Today, he writes, I sent off Form 47 to the draft board, applying for a 4E classification as a conscientious objector. When you write these things down for official consumption, they sound horribly priggish and false, because you are presenting yourself as a strictly logical, rational human being with, quote, principles, end of quote, a, quote, philosophy of life, end of quote, etc. Whereas I personally, and am much more like a horse which suddenly stops and says, no, that's going too far. From that pond, I won't drink. I have reasons, of course, and a philosophy. I can explain them quite lucidly if necessary, but how dry and cold they would be without the personal factor behind them. Now, the reference here is to Heinz Nedermeyer, who was um, uh, Isherwood's lover uh, in Germany, uh, who he writes about in his Berlin stories, his absolute focus emotionally for uh, several years, uh, in at least two, in uh, Germany and Austria before he left when the Nazis came to power. How dry and cold, continues Isherwood, these principles would be without the personal factor behind them, the simple equation which no draft board could ever understand. Heinz is in the Nazi army. I wouldn't kill Heinz. 
Therefore, I have no right to kill anybody. Now, he continues and makes the point that I'm really attempting to underline here, which is not about pacifism. It's about how you arrive at decisions, which we might call decisions in the realm of the ethical, for you, for me. And this is something that I hold very dear because it's personally PZ here. Uh, this means a great deal to me. This, this is one of the few things that in the political arena that I still care about at all. Everything else, Isherwood writes, as far as I'm concerned, is just talk. Perfectly sincere as far as it goes, but theoretical. Of course, there are a dozen ways in which you can come to the pacifist decision. And I don't doubt that there are many people who honestly arrive at it on general principles. They simply know that it is wrong for them to kill. But I have never been able to grasp any idea except through a person. For me, Vedanta, this was the form of Hinduism which Ishwood had adopted as his religion at this period, for me, Vedanta is primarily the Swami and Gerald. I once shocked a communist friend by admitting that I could only understand Marxism if I'd met Marx. Tolstoy really says the same thing in A Confession. When Tolstoy describes the public education uh, execution he saw in Paris, quote, this is Tolstoy, and I believe it's in, uh, let's see, it's in chapter 3 of his confession, which you can easily get. When I saw the head part from the body, and how they thumped separately into the box, wrote Tolstoy, I understood, not with my mind, but with my whole being, that no theory of the reasonableness of our present progress could justify this deed, and that though everybody from the creation of the world had held it to be necessary on whatever theory, I knew it to be unnecessary and bad." And therefore, the arbiter of what is good and evil is not what people say and do, nor is it progress, but it is my heart and I. Now, I personally have come to uh, believe that this is really something, and it's, in a way, the downside of the entire form of communication that the Internet now uh, has uh, made so normal for millions and millions and millions of our fellow citizens, and that includes me. Because we are, in a sense, uh, through the technology, um, allowing ourselves to be utterly and completely um, um, molded by attitudes on a vast way. It's not just in the 1940s you could listen to a recording by a band that you liked, or you could listen to a recording of an opera, or a recording of someone reading a poem, or a book of theirs, or a speech, all of that, or the radio, <coughs> which everybody had. But extrapolate from that sort of ten times more. And you see that in a way we're living in an atmosphere of control or thought control, whether we know it or not. No wonder sort of everybody seems to say the same thing. Remember what I said earlier in a podcast like that horrible Nigerian prison where you have 500 men sleeping on a floor and they there's so many and the space is so limited that they have to sleep on their sides and Every sort of two hours, a keeper kind of thumps a big staff on the ground, and they all know to turn over, to turn left, to turn right. Um, everybody's. I felt that in relationship to the change of expression in America from have a good day to have an awesome day to have a wonderful day to now. And it changed literally within about 18 hours, maybe eight minutes. Have a good one. I mean, I was with some people from overseas the other day who were waiting on me, uh, you know, who were not English speakers, and I just couldn't believe how rapidly uh, 
came to mind. They were saying to everybody, have a good one. And that was like the prisoners in Nigeria. Boom, and everybody shifted. Well, um, I, this is not a, a, a talk about brainwashing. It is a talk, however, about the remarkable difference that exists between the mood uh, to which and from which Rod McEwen could have composed that really marvelous song, which I think is eternal. I, I felt I immediately thought of the Trojan women for some reason. I thought of, um, is that Sophocles? I always forget if it's Sophocles or Euripides. I think it's Sophocles, but if I'm wrong, it's Euripides. But uh, I uh, um, immediately, you remember the old story about the uh, the uh, guy who uh, took his uh, pants uh, to be mended uh, at the uh, laundry off Harvard Square, um, and the uh, laundry guy takes the pants and turns to the young classics major and undergraduate at Harvard College, and he says, uh, Euripides? And the young, smart, classics undergraduate says, Eumenides? Well, I thought that was funny at the time. We just chuckled and chuckled in the Loeb Library in those days. We almost chortled. Well, where am I going with this? Um, You have to really decide these things on your own. And any uh, decision that short of a personal kind of involvement, such as Tolstoy seeing a man beheaded in front of him, which forever after turned him into a, an opponent of capital punishment, or Isherwood realizing that he could not – it was absolutely impossible for him to aim a gun at Heinz, and therefore he could not aim a gun at anybody in the army for possible fear of hitting a Heinz, which, as he said, no draft board in a million years would understand, stand. but the logic to Isherwood was 100 percent convincing, and to me it's 100 percent convincing. Um, to me it's absolutely, utterly, totally clear – that the use of drones is a mediated form of warfare that allows the combatant on the drone side or the operator back in Nevada or wherever he or she is to completely um, not take any direct responsibility because he's not actually present looking at the person except on a screen. So it is mediated and it's separated by thousands and thousands and thousands of miles. And so that occurs to me by definition that cannot be good or right because it's you're not seeing it for yourself. Now, many people disagree with this. I'm a minority of one, and I'm not going to convince you. I'm not going to convince anybody, and I can live with that. But that's just what I instinctively feel. And I think it's a little close to what Tolstoy was saying. No matter what civilization may say, and no matter what the arguments in favor of it for, I saw a man's head separated from his body as a form of punishment for a crime. And instinctively, I understood my heart and my eye told me I, the ego, but myself, my true self, said to me, this is unnecessary and bad, and therefore I could never do it myself or be involved with anyone or any group who believed that it was the right thing. This is the opting out of the common understanding by virtue of personal experience. We've all had these kinds of experiences. You say to yourself, you know, you may tell me a million times about all the arguments. I've heard them. You meant this, that. I know those arguments. They all sound great. But something deep inside me says no. Or you can tell me a thousand arguments against such and such and such and such, but something deep inside me cries out yes. Well, that's what I really wanted to say in this uh, very short um, cast called Hero of the War. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, Scott Walker's song um, with that title uh, has the same message, and it was recorded actually two years earlier uh, than uh, McEwen. And, you know, who in the world? You know, it's sort of the old, uh, what is it, John, you know, uh, that John Lennon uh, 
moment in uh, How I Won the War. I think it's called How I Won the War, and he's bleeding to death, and he's talking to the cameras. He's bleeding to death, and he dies right on screen. You know, it's kind of a video of a man dying, and it's it's generally works. You know, when you see him doing it, you see John Lennon, and he did later bleed to death in quite a different real situation. But you say to yourself, this can't be true. I mean, this can't be right. Um, but you all have your own. Everybody here will have their own. Some of you will apply this to this subject, to another subject. I will apply it to, to pacifism, which I am a member <laughs> or a participant. No, 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 that's not true. I am a pacifist, but um, others will apply it to a different frame of life. So anyway, listen to the irony of this very beautiful song, this very melodic song, which is partly addressed to the mother of the uh, of the subject, and then go back and listen to Rod McEwen and weep that this view is so seldom and almost not at all spoken today. It's extraordinary, the, um, the uh, view which uh, is simply not spoken. It's not illegal or anything. It can be spoken. But I just, um, I find that uh, McEwen's uh, message, like the Trojan women, just hits me right where I live. Thank you so very much, and uh, God bless. He's a hero of the war All the neighborhood is talking about your son Mrs. Riley, give his medals, hand them round to everyone Show his gun to all the children in the street It's too bad he can't shake hands and move his feet In the local news, Mrs. Riley seems a girl that stole is nowhere to be found. Once you couldn't keep that whore from hanging round. Never mind, dear, you're with your mom once more. He's a hero of the war. Like his dad who gave his life for war before It was tragic how you almost died of pain when he was born With no husband there beside you through it all Ring the bell if you get hungry or you fall You're a hero of the war why those teardrops on your cheek, it's so absurd Feeling empty, it's the emptiness of heroes like your son And what made him leave his mother for a gun Driven forward, driven back, and nothing more He's a hero of the war. 